The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm just delighted uh, for us to get to continue our uh, study of these letters in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. I don't know about you, but um, for me, just sitting in this book, um, it's just, um, it's been good for my soul. Um, you know, these letters, uh, these seven, perfect number seven letters, they give us a, uh, they give us a glimpse of the various ways that we as God's people can, um, can be tried, the various challenges that, that we can face. And um, it just helps us to see, uh, you know, we may not be dealing with one particular thing, uh, but others, uh, other, other of our brothers and sisters uh, might be, and we might sometime in the future, helps us to develop fortitude and to see the Lord's grace work <clears throat> in those various situations. It's just... It's a wonderful book. I hope that um, this series is um, opening up the book of Revelation to you more. Um, this morning, we've looked at three letters, and this morning we're going to look at uh, Jesus' letter to the Thyatirans. Um, so uh, we're going to look at Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And this is what he says to the church in Thyatira. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Oh, gracious and mighty God, your gifts are too numerous for us to count. Gracious, merciful are you, O Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your Son, for the faithful witness, our Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord, we thank you for his word to us. And this word to the Thyatirans so long ago, we ask, Lord, that by your spirit, you will open it up to us. Help us to see more of who you are in all your glory. Help us to understand what you've done for us as sinners and to what you call us to. And may that be true, Lord. Use this letter in our lives to strengthen us, to grow us in grace, all for the furtherance of your kingdom and the exaltation of your name. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> so uh, I'm, a, I'm a C.S. Lewis fan, as many of y'all probably are in this room. And in his essay on Christian membership, in his book, The Weight of Glory, <clears throat> C.S. Lewis says something <clears throat> excuse me, about the strategy Satan employs to corrupt us that as uh, someone who's not averse to playing chess now and then has stuck with me throughout the years. He says this, like a good chess player, Satan is always trying to maneuver you into a position where you can save your castle only by losing your bishop. And in this way, Satan's strategy, I think, is particularly subtle. You see, our preservation and fortification as God's people, this is a good thing. It's what God desires. It's what he promises to defend. And yet, Satan, the great deceiver, he cunningly seeks to manipulate this good desire and to steer it toward his own wicked ends. And he does this by feeding us the lies that our temporal security, both individual and corporate, is really all that matters. And that this security will only be found at the expense of our beliefs through the distortion of God's truth by losing our bishop, as C.S. Lewis might say. And friends, this is a great danger to the church, particularly because Satan oftentimes begins his assault from within the church itself rather than from the outside. In another of my favorite essays by Lewis, in his Screwtape Proposes a Toast, many of you have probably read Screwtape Letters, but sometimes that publication isn't published along with a great essay at the end of it. It's called Screwtape Proposes a Toast, and if you don't have it, you need to get it because it's hilarious and fantastic. Anyway, in that essay, Screwtape, who's a highly esteemed devil and the honored guest at a banquet, <clears throat> he raises his glass to the room in a toast, and he makes a comment that no doubt cheered the little devils on to more concentrated attacks on the church, but that should rally you and me to vigilance. He says this. He says, The fine flower of unholiness can grow only in the close neighborhood of the holy. Nowhere do we tempt so successfully 
as on the very steps of the altar. Friends, the church in Thyatira was experiencing the assault, the assault of Satan coming from within its very walls. It was subtle, but it was powerful. And some of them were on the verge of sacrificing their bishop to save the castle. And the Lord had something very, very important that they needed to hear. And friends, we need to hear it as well. So what did he have to say to them? Well, just like we've heard in the previous letters that we've studied so far, the Lord begins his address to the Thyatirans with a self-description that he's drawn from that glorious vision of the Son of Man in Revelation 1, 12 through 18. And he calls himself in verse 18, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And there are a couple of reasons why I think this would have been immediately significant for the Christians living in Thyatira. You see, first of all, I think his self-description as the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, this would have reminded the Christians there of the prophet Daniel's very similar vision in Daniel 10.6, where he says that the man had eyes like flaming torches. And this was a vivid Old Testament image of the Messiah's ability, his promised ability to penetrate and therefore to judge the secrets of the human heart. It's not surprising then to see this image resurface at the end of the book of Revelation. When the prophet John draws on it in Revelation 19, 11 through 16, to underscore Jesus' ability and rightful authority to judge, <clears throat> saying that he would tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And so hearing this, I think this description would have been at least initially deeply unsettling to the Thyatirans who are entertaining false teaching and dabbling with compromise, as we'll soon see. And secondly, I think Jesus' description of his feet as burnished bronze would have had significance for the Thyatirans, not only as an additional symbol of Jesus' authority to judge, which it definitely would have been, after all the image of a ruler placing a foot on a conquered one, is a regular image in the Old Testament in terms of displaying authority. But it would have also been seen as a direct challenge to the claims of the false gods so popular within Thyatiran culture. You see, Thyatira, which was about 40 miles or so southeast of Pergamum, as we kind of travel along John's postal route, it was a modest city. Unlike Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum that we've looked at so far, it wasn't famous for its architecture. It hadn't been especially honored by the Roman Empire, but it did have something going for it. It had a thriving commercial economy, and it was widely known for its numerous trade guilds, guilds for bakers, for shoemakers, for fabric dyers, and a host of others. In fact, we know from Acts 16 that the early convert to Christianity, Lydia, who was a seller of purple cloth, she had come to Philippi from Thyatira. And I love to think about uh, what the influence she must have had on this thriving church in Thyatira. 
But Thyatira was especially known for its bronze workers. And the bronze workers in Thyatira worshipped the local god, Apollos Tyrimaeus, whose image was printed on their coins and who, along with the emperor himself, was hailed as a son of God. And so right from the get-go, the pointedness of Jesus' full self-description in this opening verse would have been evident to the Thyatirans. There would have been no mistaking it. It would have been as clear as if Jesus had said to them, brothers and sisters, I know what you're flirting with. I can see it. And the exalted claims of these false gods who demand your allegiance, they're nothing but a wicked ruse to trap you and to place you under their thumb. Brothers and sisters, don't listen to them. Listen to me. I alone am the rightful son of God, and I'm the one who sees in secret. And friends, it's on the heels of this remarkable and I think deeply convicting self-description that we hear the Lord address the Thyatirans not with rebuke, but with surprising, almost effervescent praise. He says to them in verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. You see, the church in Thyatira, it was a blossoming vineyard. The Christians there were growing. As John Stott remarks, they not only rivaled Ephesus in busy Christian service, but exhibited the love which Ephesus lacked, preserved the faith which was imperiled at Pergamum, and shared with Smyrna the virtue of patient endurance and tribulation. In fact, Jesus' commendation here of the Thyatirans, it reads like a litany of the greatest Pauline virtues. We can almost hear the apostle himself saying to them the same thing that he said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers remembering before God and our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, despite their praiseworthy faithfulness and maturity, the Thyatirans were in desperate need of the Lord's correction. You see, apparently there was a well-known woman a self-styled prophetess who was in their complacency beguiling the Thyatiran Christians and leading them astray. And friends, the danger she posed to their community was as dangerous as Jezebel's had been to the Israelites in the Old Testament. You might remember the character of Jezebel from reading 1 and 2 Kings. She was the wife of Ahab, King Ahab, and the daughter of Ethbaal, priest of Asherah. And what's significant for Jesus' message to the Thyatirans is that Asherah is the Phoenician version of the goddess Venus, who was known as the morning star. And in her wickedness, Jezebel had led her husband, Ahab, to set up a temple to Asherah in Samaria. She'd sought the death of a host of Yahweh's faithful prophets. 
And in a nutshell, she had played the role of a beguiling succubus and led her husband and Israel into idolatry and spiritual fornication. And friends, her influence on the people of God was devastating. So much so that later on in 2 Kings 9.22, we hear King Jehu say to Joram, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? So I think it's, it's not without a hint of poetic irony that her name probably means pure or chaste. And this woman in Thyatira, she was following in the footsteps of this Old Testament Jezebel. Embracing her claim to be a prophetess, she was leading the Christians there into idolatry. Urging them in a manner similar to the followers of Balaam and the Nicolaitans in the church of Pergamum. To compromise their beliefs and to participate in idolatrous feasts and the sexual promiscuity that often attended these events in order to avoid social disapproval and perhaps to the government's persecution. And in this way, this Jezebel, she was encouraging them to play the harlot against the Lord. And perhaps too, in a wicked distortion of Paul's teaching on Christian liberty, she was teaching them that to be comfortable to be okay with participating in such things was actually a mark of, perhaps even an avenue for, deeper Christian knowledge and experience. We can almost hear her using the words of the apostle himself in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to defend her teaching. My dear Thyatirans, the apostle himself told us that an idol has no real existence, right? Well, if that's true, there's nothing to fear. Come with me. Let's go to the feasts and together enjoy their food. Let's embrace our liberty in Christ to the fullest. But friends, for her to propagate such advice was to miss the apostle's point entirely in 1 Corinthians 10, that happens just a couple chapters, chapters later. That to be a participant in such feasts is to be a participant with demons. It was to encourage the Thyatira tyrants not onto a deeper understanding of the apostles' message and the freedom we have in Christ, but instead it was to encourage them to close their ears to his emphatic exhortation to flee from idolatry and to shrug off his solemn warning that as believers, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. In other words, her teaching, friends, was a distortion of the truth of God. And this is why we hear Jesus in verse 24 of our passage this is why we hear him castigate her teachings as counterfeit doctrine, as the deep things of Satan rather than the deep things of God. And you know, this, this particular temptation to compromise with the world and to dabble in its practices under the banner of Christian freedom, 
This is one of Satan's most dangerous strategies. You see, Satan wants to seduce us. He wants to seduce you and me. And manipulating the truths we hold dear, particularly through the teachings of those who carry influence within our communities, this is one of his favorite and effective tactics. The Apostle Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians 11, 14, and 15 that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we must remember then that although Satan comes to us as an alluring seductress, underneath her disguise, he's a roaring lion. and He's seeking to devour us. And you know, I think Jesus' message here should cause us to reflect here and now. On the temptations to compromise, we've already begun to embrace. Even the ones not so obvious to others. The ones we've kept hidden. And it's a call for us to repent of them. You see, in verses 22 and 23, Jesus graphically warns Jezebel and her followers that he will bring devastating judgment upon them because they refuse to repent And he'll do so, so that all the churches might know that he is the one who searches mind and heart. Did you catch that? Jesus is the one who searches mind and heart. Friends, how often it is that we fall prey to compromising teachings and situations because we assume no one else knows what we're doing or what we're thinking in the privacy of our homes, in our anonymity on the internet, and in the secrecy of our own minds, we invite people and organizations to to exert an influence over us as followers of Christ that they have no business exerting. We indulge appetites that are meant to be put to death as the desires of the flesh, not cultivated as the fruit of the Spirit. And we flirt with new ideas, distortions of the truth that will lead us into bondage to the counterfeit God of this world rather than into greater enjoyment of our freedom in Christ. Like the wicked in Isaiah 29, 15, in our hubris and ignorance, we say, who sees us? Who knows us? Brothers and sisters, this should not be. The Thyatirans needed to be reminded, and we do too, that Jesus is the one who searches mind and heart. He's the one with eyes like flame of fire. He's the one who sees in secret. And as a Latin teacher, there's a wonderful little Latin phrase that captures this beautifully. Corum Deo. You've, You've maybe heard of it. Corum Deo. Before the face of God. It simply means that we live our lives moment by moment, publicly and privately, in His almighty and holy presence. And friends, to grasp this is to embrace one of the precious means the Lord provides to spur those whom He loves on to uncompromising faithfulness and holiness. 
In fact, rightly understood, it's simply what it means to live in the fear of the Lord, which is the only path to true freedom. Well, how should the Thyre Tyrants have responded to Satan's attack? And how should we respond when attacked similarly? Well, I want, I want you to notice in verse 20 that Jesus says that the Thyatirans were tolerating the teachings of Jezebel. In other words, they were being complacent. And in their complacency, they were allowing falsehood to run unchecked. And whether this was a failure due to a lack of discernment or to their own cowardice, it doesn't really matter. After all, both discernment and courage are necessary to fight against false teaching. The Apostle Paul told Titus in Titus 1.9 that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So brothers and sisters, the, the complacent failure of the Thyatirans with Jezebel and the recognition of our own complacency, complacency here and now these serve as warnings to us. And they also serve as a call for us to renew our vigilance, to guard fervently the precious truths of God's word against Satan's schemes, however attractive and subtle they might be. Friends, complacency isn't an option. And yet it's also important for us, as we strive to be vigilant, to keep in mind how Jesus exhorts those in Thyatira who are remaining faithful to him. In verses 24 and 25, he says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. And this is important. You see, I think it's easy for us to overreact in our vigilance. Like the Pharisees who tied up heavy burdens upon the weak, we ourselves are prone to bind the consciences of our brothers and sisters with rules about what not to say, what not to think, and what not to do. Rules that really have more to do with our personal convictions and the teachings of men than with what Jesus himself actually requires of us. And in this way, our vigilance can quickly devolve into an ugly hedging of the law. And of course, avoiding this pitfall takes wisdom. Absolutely, no doubt. It's not easy for any of us. But avoiding it begins with awareness. So brothers and sisters, we need to be aware of this tendency. And we need to fight against it with the same fervency that we guard the whole counsel of God's word. We need to follow the example of Jesus. After all, he himself places no other burden on, the, on us than to hold fast to what we already have, to cling to his teachings and to his requirements, not to the teachings of men, remembering, as John says in 1 John 5, 3, that this is true, the true love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Well, as Jesus brings his message to the Thyatirans to a close in the final verses, we hear him once again give promises to the conquerors. And it's a fitting and deeply comforting ending to this letter. 
You see, in Psalm 2, 7 through 9, the Lord God Almighty had promised to give his Messiah his own worldwide authority as an inheritance, saying to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Brothers and sisters, this was the promised heritage to the Lord's Messiah. And here, to the Thyatirans, who were being pressured to bow to the counterfeit authority of false gods like Apollos Tyrannaeus, and to give them their allegiance. Here, Jesus, who began his address to them, claiming to be the very Son of God, the victorious Lion of Judah and the risen Lamb. He graciously promises to those who refuse to bow to other gods, he promises to the faithful a share in his rightful authority. Friends, this is an incredible promise. And although our share in this authority will only be fully realized when he comes again in glory and we judge the world, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.2, brothers and sisters, the remarkable thing about the gospel is that we share in this authority even now. After all, John says clearly in Revelation 5.10 that the Lord has already made us a kingdom and priests our God. But you know, what's even more remarkable is that the Lord not only promises the faithful a share in his authority, he also promises them the most precious gift of all, the gift of himself. You see, at the end of the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus says to the prophet John in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, 16, I have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And here, to the fire tyrants who were being bewitched by a self-styled prophetess, who was following in the path of her wicked namesake Jezebel, the daughter of a priest of Asherah, the morning star, here Jesus says to those who reject her seductions, to those who refuse to compromise and to believe her lies, he says to the faithful, and he promises them a perfect and genuine and everlasting gift, the gift of himself. And he says to them, I will give him the morning star. Brothers and sisters, this is the gift Satan wants us to reject. All his promises, every enticement that he offers, no matter how alluring or how desperately we think we need them, all of it is a means to lead us into compromise and to rob us of this blessed and glorious gift. Friends, Jesus, the Son of God, the bright morning star, he doesn't offer counterfeit gifts that will lead to our destruction. He offers us himself here and now. And you know, I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. 
verse 6. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Will you trust him? Will you trust his promises? Will you bow before him alone, forsaking all others, and come to him in faith today? Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a kindness you have given us to give us this day, to bring us together, to exalt your name, and to hear your word. Oh, Father, we ask that you will bless this time. Bless it for your sake, that you, may be, you might be exalted in our faithful witness to what you have done and who you are. Bless it, Lord, that your kingdom might go forth and we might be found faithful. We pray all this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.